Welcome to the Orange County Catholic Radio Show on AM 1000 in Orange and San Diego counties and on AM 930 in Los Angeles County. Each week, we bring you compelling conversation with church leaders and laity, talking about the things going on in our diocese and discussing the important issues that impact the world around us. We're coming to you through the good offices of Relevant Radio from our studios on the campus of Christ Cathedral in Garden Grove, where Catholic faith is crystal clear. Here now to introduce our guest and today's topic is your host, Rick Howick. And welcome to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host, and with me today we have one of our great friends, James Day, who is the operations manager for the West Coast studio for EWTN. James, welcome. Oh, thank you. Always happy to be here, Rick. Good to see you. And as we always begin our program with a prayer, would you be so kind as to start us with a prayer? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, dear Lord, as we begin this year, please guide us uh, as to where you want us to go and continue to give us guides along the way, guides like Michelangelo, guides like our fathers in faith and the the men and women who guide us to the sacraments and to the light of your face. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The reason we have James on today really isn't so much to deal with EWTN, though I do want to talk for a moment about a couple of things that are coming up, but it's because James has been involved with our campus here in the Diocese of Orange, has written a book about it, but has also recently done research and written a series of articles on Michelangelo's paintings of the Sistine Chapel, which are on display in stunning replica here at the Diocese of Orange. They're set up in a display center, and they're mostly life-size or close to life-size, and they're displayed in a way that you can actually, well, some people have said they, they can see them better here than you could the real deal if you went across the ocean and saw them at the Vatican. Is is that also what you've experienced too, James? Absolutely. I was able to get in while they were setting up the exhibit to kind of take a peek. And, uh, it's, it's mind boggling, especially now that they've added the, uh, the full size last judgment, which you, I'm sure if you walk into the cultural center, there it is just hanging and just uh, dominant of sight. It's incredible. Before we get too far into the detail behind the incredible impact of this display, let's talk for a moment about you. We've had you on before. You've written a book on uh, Pope Benedict, as I recall. And then you've also done, since you've been focused here at the studio at EWTN, in the Tower of Hope on the campus of uh, the Diocese of Orange, you've done a book on the, the Diocese of Orange. Tell us just a little bit about that as well. Yeah, that's right. Actually, what we're going to talk about today really grew out of that writing project, which was I was asked by the diocese to... Uh, to basically tell the story of the transformation from Crystal Cathedral to Christ Cathedral. But as we talked about when you had me on last, it really was more about the impact of cathedrals throughout history and what they can still speak to us today. I mean, they're really visual gospels, and that's really what I wanted to try to, to express for our modern Catholics. That's fantastic. Which brings us kind of into where we are right now. Now, you're involved, you're real job is to be involved with EWTN's programming here and making sure that all of the stuff that takes place on the West Coast uh, gets out there as a qualified production. So thank you, first of all, for your expertise for getting it out there. I know, for example, Father Spitzer is one of our main people that his office is literally directly overhead here. If we put in a fire pole, he could come down and just sit in your seat right now. And we do have him on from time to time, but you have him on basically a weekly in order to do his program there in the studio. Yeah. So there's a lot that's going on. What what particularly are you focusing on this year at DWTN sure. on the West Coast part? Father Spitzer's show, uh, Father Spitzer's Universe continues to air live, uh, broadcast out of here. And it is, as you said, I mean, it is absolutely just a remarkable first off that he's here. I just want to well, point he's, that he's out. He's a remarkable man. <laughs> it's funny because the, the guy can't see. So when you're on the air, unless you're paying attention, he he's blind. But yet he keeps up on everything. Yeah. It's like, how do you do the things that I know are only available in print? How does he know this stuff? Yet he does. Yeah, he does. And, and he'll be able to, to break it down for you if you, yeah. if you ask. And so he's just, I, it's just a remarkable time, I think, that we're at and that he's representative of that. So we continue his show weekly. 
I told him when I saw him at Mass uh, a couple of weeks ago that I'm doing my dissertation on Tertullian. The first thing out of his mouth was, oh, good, you must be doing great in Latin. I'd love to talk with you. <laughs> well, not that good, Father, but thank you very much. The man's brilliant. Yeah, so no, you're enjoying his program yeah. on astrophysics in the world (laughs) literally sitting at his feet and catching all learning all of what he has to say um but we have being january we uh ewtn always covers the life events and so i just wanted to point out that uh i'll be on on site for one life la which is the archdiocese of los angeles's event they've been doing it for the last few years so it's good to see people should know that the archdiocese of la is out there uh, supporting uh life pro-life movements so that'll be Mm -hmm. at the la historic park in, in later this month and then I'll be up in uh, San Francisco for the Walk for Life as well, which EWTN will be broadcasting. Very good, very good. So you're a very busy man, and you're making sure that all this takes place next door, but you're also deeply involved with what's going on here at the Cultural Center, and you've been writing this series of essays. I know that as of this taping, six of the seven installments have been published in the OC Catholic, and they're short pieces. They're about four pages apiece. But they're like little chapters into studies on Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel paintings. Let's talk for a little bit about that. Let's let's yeah. shift into that. First of all, why Michelangelo and why the Sistine Chapel? How did that come together? From a practical standpoint, it struck me that here we have this this incredible exhibit, this the Michelangelo uh, Sistine Chapel exhibit here at Christ Cathedral. And I really wanted to break down uh, elements uh, that Michelangelo achieved in the Sistine Chapel for modern Catholics, uh, maybe to supplement the visuals in a way, because here's the crux for me. Michelangelo is more than just an artist. He's a man of faith. And secondly, we have to ask ourselves when we look upon his art, are we tourists or are we pilgrims when we gaze upon these remarkable masterpieces? So when we're looking at his artwork, kind of an echo from our Eastern brothers and sisters who look at icons as a as actually a written gospel. You, you don't paint an icon, you write an icon when you are, are creating an icon in the East. At least that's the terminology they use. What we're seeing when we're looking at Michelangelo's material is like an icon. It's, it speaks the gospel of Christ. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is, that's, that's perfect to bring in the, the Eastern Orthodox, uh, tradition and Byzantine, uh, Catholic tradition too. I, I think we've, we've separated or we've forgotten about that notion of icons as windows into the divine, as, as, as the East have said. From a, from a stylistic perspective, it's easy to do. Most of the icons that we're familiar with have almost a flat two dimensional appeal to them. And one of the hallmarks of the like Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci, Perugio, all the ones that were out of the Italian Renaissance, was this rediscovery or discovery of geometric advancement in how you can portray something three-dimensional in a two-dimensional world. How do we get perspective? And that's so important to have lifelike humanness, uh, the human form, and perspective, science, all of that gets conveyed in addition to the themes, which is where we get our theology in there. So from a stylistic perspective, they're very different. But from a theological perspective, they're both gospel statements. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's where we've we've lost track. I think the secular mentality has really overtaken how we are supposed to look at Michelangelo. It's almost a cliche, the David, the, the creation of Adam. You know, we see these images everywhere. They're sometimes parodied. The questions about, you know, well, Michelangelo's sexuality, things that kind of get off track from this was a guy who Michelangelo was a daily communicant. Yeah. That's something else right there. Now, is it true that when Michelangelo was first approached about painting the Sistine Chapel that he kind of argued with the Pope about he why he shouldn't do it? He did. And you should go see Agony and the Ecstasy, uh, which we talked about and we talked about in one of the articles here where where they cover that kind of humorously. But, yeah, he uh, he saw himself as a sculptor. Yeah. First and foremost, he, I'm a sculptor, your holiness. Not well, people a will remember David and, and all of the, Florence. the, the, there are, and then there are all sorts of visual jokes that go along with David, but 
David is his classic of his, but he also did the Pieta. Absolutely, when he was 23. Wow. You know, when he first shows up in Rome to really kind of make it, you know, and, and, and sort of the Hollywood of, of, of Renaissance, uh, Italy. But yeah, but what really, really planted the seeds for me years ago, before this even, before we even had the Sistine Chapel here, was the staircase over here at the Tower of Hope reminded me as I would climb these stairs sometimes thinking about, um, the stairway uh, Jacob's Ladder, the notion of the divine ascent, that sort of thing. Well, Michelangelo at 17 sculpted Our Lady of the Staircase. And that really struck me as a way of com- of meshing art and prayer. And I think that that's what he did his whole life. So Michelangelo was approached by the Pope, and he sees himself as a sculptor. So what happened? So Julius II wanted... The Sistine Chapel, which was named after his uncle, Sixtus IV, uh, who built it, he wanted it decorated, and he would use the word decorated, decorated which would okay. also insult Michelangelo, sure. decorator. <laughs> um, Here, put some of your decorations up there. <laughs> and he wanted the Twelve Apostles up there, uh, okay. which Michelangelo diligently started to do, but there wasn't that, and I write about this in, in the uh, the piece on Julius and, and uh, Michelangelo's, there wasn't that creative that the juices weren't flowing. And that right. you really need that for, for sure. art to really pop off. You have to own the project. You have to own it. And he and he was going through the motions. As he, the Pope was his boss. He was, he'd been hired to do something. Let's hired. get it done, and I'll get back to my sculpting. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. This was not supposed to be a four-year project uh, yeah. and you know where he would hurt his back and his eyesight, and the paint would be falling into his eyes. But a moment of inspiration, which the film uh, Agony and the Ecstasy in the novel by Irving Stone covers, is uh, he's off in the mountains of um, outside Rome on New Year's Day, and he's seeing the sun, the sunrise, and he's having this image of Genesis and the creation. And from there, it just he, it just took off. And he couldn't even explain it. He just produced what, was, what popped in his mind. Well, the ceiling was such a, a difficult medium to work with in the first place. Because some people would say that once you take away, if you strip away all of Michelangelo's decorations, it's an ugly ceiling. It <laughs> or is. It's a difficult yeah. ceiling yeah. to work with. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at it, and the film Agony and the Ecstasy shows that it was just these like ugly stars up there. No one really knew what to do up there with it. And he covered by the end, it's completely filled with these master masterworks. There's not an air in there. When we come back, I want us to get into some of these actual uh, paintings. I know that we're on the radio side, which means people can't see it. I'm going to count on you, James, to describe enough so that people can see with their mind what's going on. People also, most of our listeners will be a little familiar with what's there. We've got a lot to cover because there's a lot of interesting things that go along with this. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. With me today is James Day. Well, he's involved with EWTN, but he's also involved here at the Diocese of Orange, and he's done a series of articles on the Sistine Chapel because we have this fantastic opportunity to see the artwork of the Sistine Chapel up close and personal here at the Diocese of Orange. When we come back, we'll talk more about it. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host, and with me today is James Day from EWTN West Coast, and also one of the people who's been deeply involved with the campus here at the Diocese of Orange. And I say deeply involved, meaning you've written not only a book on the transition from it being the Crystal Cathedral to Christ Cathedral, you've literally written the book on it, but we've got a stunning display that's been available and has actually been extended now on the Sistine Chapel, and you've been writing a series of articles on that. So welcome back, James, and I'm glad that you've been able to be here. I want to get right into some of the interesting things behind this. For people who have not seen the Sistine Chapel, go to your computer and uh, just Google it and go to the images and, and look at it while we're talking. We're going to be talking about some of the artwork that's there. And some of the interesting things behind it. So, for example, I, I know you mentioned that the first significant work that he did, the first frame, so to speak, was on the flood. Is that correct? On the ceiling, yeah. On, on the, the ceiling. ceiling, it was okay. the flood. 
And, um, you know, if you do look at that photo or that, that art, and I hope you did this photo because it's so realistic, it's unlike all the other ones on the ceiling because of so many characters are packing the frame. Okay, so you've got more characters in this this section of the ceiling than any other section. That's right. And it's I, on the flood. Okay. And, and I think when they finished this particular panel, it had taken so long and it was so complex. I'm sure Julius II had some thoughts about, well, is this what all the panels are going to look like, you know, I mean, like, let's see some, let's see some more work here completed. But it, you know, it speaks to me, Rick, as um, something that's very timely. It, it's called the deluge and it's about sort of Noah's Ark sort of frames, um, frames the, uh, the image. But really what struck me is, is those poor folks who are trying to find land and are just struggling. And it just seems to me as, Michelangelo really, first off, I, I was wondering, did he model this panel off, off an image that he saw? Because it's so detailed. It's so lifelike. It, it, it's almost like he was, he was there at the flood himself. Well, he's got pictures of people that are trying to, to reach high ground. They're carrying other people. They look like refugees. Exactly. As if they're leaving a war torn yes. area. Yes. And in the background, it's interesting too, the, the when we think of Noah's Ark, we're often thinking of a big boat. And what he's got floating out there l- literally looks like a wooden ark, like the Ark of the Covenant type ark. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And even there, people are trying to uh, climb on as a last resort. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I mean, there's it, it, it's really a humanity at, at its at its worst because People are trying to find, get on the boat. They're trying to, they're trying to get on dry land. People are pushing them off. People, uh, you know, one older guy is, is, is clutching a, a, a body trying to, to save this person. Um, there's children and, and, and babies. There's, I love this, uh, one woman, uh, carrying a, a, a table and, and, and some. Well, she's some trying to carry her things. Her things yeah. to, to safety. Yeah. And safety is going to be on land that's going to be underwater here in a few minutes. That's right. So there's 50 characters, over 50 characters wow. packing this frame. And each of them speaks to you. Right. I mean, when you, when you look at these in little pictures like this, unlike what you're able to see both at the original in the Vatican, though it's at a distance, and the one we have on display here, which is a stunningly realistic reproduction of it, where you can see it closer and you can see all the detail, all of the people in here are conveying an emotion. And most of them are are unique to each one of the characters. Yes. So I would encourage you, if you are able to go and visit the uh, Sistine Chapel exhibit here at Christ Cathedral, there are chairs um, benches where you can sit and meditate and sort of contemplate like, like you would at an art museum. I yeah. would really encourage that. You could also listen to the audio tour as well. Take your time. There's no rush. You're not having the guards saying silencio while you're in the, the yeah. Sistine Chapel getting you to move on. You're not packed in with pilgrim, with tourists. So take your time looking at that. So when we're looking at, at this, and again, our people can't see it, but you've got this floating box out there, which is the ark and it's, Almost theologically, it is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant uh, in the Middle Ages was well represented. There was a lot of theology tied around it because inside the Ark you had the Ten Commandments. Inside the Ark you had the staff of uh, Aaron. Inside the Ark you had the jar of manna, all of which conveyed Jesus Christ, the Word of God, which is the Ten Commandments, the Law of God, which is the staff of Aaron, the bread of life, which was conveyed by manna, all of that contained in the ark. Here you have in the flood humanity, all that was left of the good of humanity and all that was left of the good of the world was tied up in that big box. Oh, that's great. Theologically, yeah, it's just, it is, yeah, that's great. here yeah. you have represented here that ark there as if right. you've got God again trying to do a, a recreation theologically. I'm going to take over again. Yes, no, that's fantastic because this, you're, you're not really, even though the, the arc is in the frame and you can't miss it, your, your focus is on these despaired faces. Who are doomed. There is no God. Exactly. Exactly. There is no God. So, you know, it just reminded me of when Pope Francis went to Lampedusa. If you remember that in 2013, it was his first trip outside Rome and, um, he wanted to draw attention to the migrant situation 
that was going on and still is going on, Lampedusa being the island that is the sort of the main portal for uh, refugees, migrants leaving Africa right. to get into Europe. Most of those that are leaving Africa are coming in from the civil wars in Syria. They, some of them had been coming in from North Africa. But this is where you had the Pope trying to draw attention to the plight of these people. And Europe has faced its own issues with immigration. But these are people who have seen their world almost be doomed. Yeah. And, and I, I think Pope Francis has been calling us to see that. And we see an aspect of that in this. Yeah, specifically his great phrase that he came up with, uh, you know, pretty early on in his pontificate, which was the globalization of indifference. The globalization of indifference. What does Pope Francis mean by that? The globalization of indifference. I have a quote that I think that he said that I think sums it up, Rick. He says, how many of us, myself included, have lost our bearings? We are no longer attentive to the world in which we live. We don't care. We don't protect what God created for everyone. And we end up unable to even care for one another. Wow. So this globalization of indifference is the idea that throughout the world we are experiencing a lack of caring, a lack of understanding, a lack of embrace of God in each other. You know, this goes back to Matthew 25 and the judgment of the sheep and the goats, where the final exam question, so to speak, when all of us are gathered before him and he separates the sheep and the goats, is when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was thirsty, did you give me drink? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was sick or in prison, did you visit me? And these people ask him, well, when, Lord, did we see you in that condition? Truly, truly, when you did it to the least of these or when you failed to do it to the least of these. And these are all those who are gathered from all time throughout the world at the judgment scene. You either did or didn't do it unto me. And we're at, in some ways, that stage. I think that's where Pope Francis is going with it. Oh, absolutely. And I can see that connected with his emphasis on when he did, when we had the year of mercy with his constant outreach to the disenfranchised. And I see that all here in, um, in this panel. And I, I really think it speaks across the ages. It's not set in one time in one place. It sadly, this kind of exodus still occurs in our own time. You know, this panel also reminds me, I'm looking at the people that are there. They're not being mean to each other, they're, but they're taking care of their own. They're not necessarily, I don't see anyone really helping each other with the exception of those who seem to be helping their own people. So we've got one person carrying somebody else, but and other people are carrying their own bundles and they're, they've got their own focus on themselves. It's almost as if, okay, we could go to war and we can talk about what happened in World War II and Nazis, or we could talk about what's going on to the, the Uyghurs in China and the cruelties that we visit on people. But the globalization of indifference is a little bit different than that. And it's seeing people who are in despair. Not necessarily you are the one who's creating the despair for them, but seeing people who are in need and not letting that move you. That's right. If it hasn't moved you, you don't have the love of Christ. The reason why the people in, the, in, in Matthew 25 are condemned is because it doesn't matter how many masses you've gone to. Something did not sink in. Something didn't take in you. All those masses, all that Eucharist, if you haven't really taken Christ, when you've received the body and blood, soul and divinity of Christ in the Eucharist, did you glean from it Christ himself and let that stay inside you so that the love and the heart of Christmas, which we just went through, has stayed behind so that you want to act out in the world. And we see the fruits of that in this panel. We see that in the faces of the people. We see it in the the quiet selfishness in this almost self-reflection that each of these people have. Yeah, a couple of things you, you said that was just great. First off, I can going off that, I can almost imagine if this was really happening, almost a silence. A kind of, there's really no need for words here. It's, it's, it's that when things are so bad, you know, there's just this quiet desperation. And the other thing about your the question about the globalization of indifference, actually, Francis says, uh, you know, we've forgotten how to weep. We've forgotten compassion and what that means, as you know, suffering with others. And it, he talks about this wisdom of weeping and, and, and how that we're almost dry as a people these days. This is where I think his his uh, repeated theme of accompaniment, where we are called to accompany others on their journey, 
uh, really makes sense. And it's a matter of we see people who are walking along the way wounded and, and hurt. Sometimes all that's necessary is for us to walk with them. It's in that building of relationship and that walking and that accompaniment that we begin to know what their needs are and we're able to then be there for them and to help them reach out toward Christ themselves. And it's amazing, Rick, you know, how connected we are technically. We still feel there's still a a kind of disengagement nowadays, almost like we are trying to escape from something, you know, that there is a flood going on. We can't put our fingers on it, you know. Well, and in this frame, and this is, as you said, this is the most important frame, well, the busiest frame busiest. Uh, of there. How many frames, how many sections are there in the entire work? Rick, I knew you put me on the spot. I'm sorry. There's about 10. Okay, so um, we're not going to spend the same amount of time on all 10. The reason we're focusing on this frame is because it kind of sets the stage yeah. for the rest of what follows. Because when we come back, I want us to talk a little bit about the face of Christ that we see presented by Michelangelo here, because Michelangelo, as you said, was a daily communicant. Michelangelo incorporates his theology into this, and yet we really only have two major portraits of Christ in the entire piece, and it's interesting to see these two different portraits. When we come back, I want to talk about that. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host, and with me today is James Day from EWTN here on the West Coast, who has also been focused on... Analysis of the Sistine Chapel, and it's quite timely for us here in the Diocese of Orange because we have this wonderful uh, display of the Sistine Chapel artwork here in Orange. And when we come back, I want to go into a little bit more on the face of Christ that it presents. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio, coming to you high atop the Tower of Hope in beautiful Garden Grove, California, where Catholic faith is crystal clear. With me today is James Day, who has been on the West Coast Division of EWTN for a couple of years now. James, before we go any further, I've mentioned EWTN, EWTN, EWTN. Just for the few people who may not know, what is EWTN? Yeah, it's the largest religious media network in the world. It was founded by the late Mother Angelica in 1981. And EWTN, yeah, sometimes uh, people aren't, you know, you mention EWTN and sometimes, you you know, you get the confused look. Um, The best example for me is when uh, Mel Gibson was promoting his film Hacksaw Ridge a few years ago. I was sent up to uh, to be part of the the press junket there up in uh, Los Angeles. And the guy announced that it was now my turn to come into the into the little room where um, Mel and uh, Andrew Garfield, who played the lead in the Hacksaw Ridge, were there. And he says, um, he says, it's James Day from Eternal Word Television Network. And now Mel Gibson, who had complete control on what press was coming in for this junket, says, what is that? What, what is that? What is that? And I just go, it, it's EWTN. He goes, oh, that's what that means. That's what that means. <laughs> Eternal Word Television Network. Okay. I have been there. I know I'm sure you've been there. I have been there. Uh, I, I did a show years ago on my conversion for the Coming Home Network, so I was there for that. Marcus. Uh, in fact, I, I was I was housed at one of the houses <laughs> they have there on campus. There were uh, Jim and Penny Lord, God bless them both. They were, they were there. And I remember two things about that most especially. Number one, when you walk out the door in August in Alabama, you better be wearing cotton. Because you will be soaked by the time you walk 10 feet. And number two, that is a huge operation in a very small building. They've got a, it's a small building that they've expanded a little bit, but it's a small building there. And the control areas in there where they've got all these monitors up for all these different broadcasts throughout the world is just incredible. Yeah, I just encourage you to, to re- look into the story of Mother Angelica and how she started out of a garage with $200 and, and turned to, turned it into something that has changed people's lives. Yeah, she's from Ohio. Good luck. That's right, Canton. Anyway, uh, we have been talking about this display of the Sistine Chapel that we have here at the Diocese of Orange. And... You've done a series of analyses on some of the portraiture of what we see there. To me, the most important aspect of Christianity is Christ. We just came through Advent and Christmas where we've been anticipating the coming of Christ, and now we've got Christ come to us. And yet when you look at the Sistine Chapel, you almost have to look to find Jesus in the Sistine Chapel works there. 
What's that all about? Yeah. Well, let's take the, first off, the, the Last Judgment, which I think everyone is familiar with. You can probably even picture it without even having to look at it. It's pretty obvious that the central figure is, of course, the resurrected Christ, but he doesn't look anything like we, we, we know him to be. Well, two things on that. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll talk about him being kind of the Rambo-looking uh, Christ of that. But the other thing is, that was added later, wasn't it? You may have stumped me on that one, Rick. Okay, I thought that was added a little bit later on. That's okay. So you're talking about the centrality of the central judgment has Jesus Christ there. I mentioned Rambo. He's a buff-looking yeah, dude there. Yeah. yeah. Now, you, you may be coming at it from the fact that Michelangelo modeled that particular image of Christ off the Apollo who, uh, located in the Vatican. Okay. Uh, okay. So you are, I'm confused because you're the expert. I'm not. No, no, no. Well, not, but if you look at the Pieta, okay, especially from the, if you get an overhead picture, there's some of them which are fantastic. That's the classic. It's the Christ with the, uh, the beard, the forked beard, the, the parted hair, you know, the, what yeah. we would see. Just look at the Shroud of Turin and then you, yeah. you can see the connection there. Yeah. Here's the resurrected Christ. But even though there's no doubt it's the resurrected Christ, he's beardless. It's almost, almost blondish type short hair. And in classic Michelangelo fashion, he's big, he's ripped. I mean, he's, yeah. that's Michelangelo's. He is all that and, he and, ought to be as a right. human being uh, if he were perfected now. Right. And yet still we can see the side wound. Okay. Right. Okay. So, uh, you know, the doubting Thomas put my hand in the side. So that's the one image that I think everyone would, would connect with. But, okay. but that's not the only one. That, that's, but that's the, that's the masculine buff Jesus. Right. Uh, they're at the at the Last Supper. Judging the quite, living and the dead. Right. But there's another one that's kind of almost, you, you miss it if you're not looking for it. There is. And, and this just opens up so much theological implications. And it just shows how much Michelangelo's art also spoke in terms of theology. It, it wasn't like he was wow. He wasn't out to wow people. I really don't think that. You know, he was out there to really, like, where this came from, I you know, who knows? I mean, that's. The work of a master. Well, and it uh, kind of reminds me of the difference between people who go out to, to sell a product versus people who go out to create. And he wasn't out to, to sell a product. In fact, you, you mentioned he was given a product to do, do 12 apostles. Yeah, that's not my project. Yeah. This is my project. This is what I got to do. Yeah. I got to do this. Right. And, and he does right. it. Right. He does that because it, it come, it, but it comes from a genuine place of pursuing truth and I really want to encourage, I think at the bottom line, what working on this whole series, Rick, was, you know, coming at it from a film and television perspective, um, and, 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 and art and being in, in Los Angeles, you know, Southern California. It's this reminder that sacred art, that Michelangelo was in fact Catholic, first and foremost. You know, he wasn't out there just for the glory, but he was out there for something bigger than himself. And I really want people to realize that that's still there. A lot of people don't, don't think about what these artists did and what they went through. But Michelangelo was a sculptor, and meaning that he took reasonably soft rock that had no real form to it at all, looked at it, and could see something that he was going to create out of it, and then did. Yeah. So you look at a piece like David, and if you just look at the head itself, oh, wow, how do you do that? Yeah. Here we have a theology going of creation being lived out. It's mm. a lived oh, theology. Great. No, that's great. I, we're going to get into the, the second portrait of Christ here in a second, but I do want to say, uh, going off that, actually here in Christ Cathedral, the, the Carrera marble out of which the altar and uh, the predella ha is created here, uh, that came from, that's Carrera, Italy, where Michelangelo himself quarried with the laborers. It was his way of to maybe recharge well, I think he was probably also looking for the pieces he wanted. Right. right. He knew what he wanted. Yeah. yeah. He wouldn't rely on something, somebody else to say, well, here's your, here's your stone. For him, it was all about the figure that he was sculpting was trapped inside. It was yeah. his job to just, just bring it to life, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> well, and we think of uh, white marble, uh, which is usually kind of between white and gray as being the, the medium that was used. But when you talk about marble, especially going back to Roman, the Roman era, 1,500 years before, any kind of stone that could be worked that way was considered, quote, marble, unquote. And so you've got all these different colors that are available that they still, these these artists could use. He would choose whatever stone he wanted to convey the mood he wanted as well. 
that's, that's right, yeah. Fascinating guy. Yeah. Here he's now trapped in the medium of paint, a two-dimensional okay. thing. That's right. That's right. And so if you go to the central image on the ceiling, so we're back here to the ceiling now. now the central image is of the creation of Adam. That's right. So that traditional thing you think of where you've got God the Father reaching out with his finger to touch the hand of Adam and... You've got the big figure of God with his entourage, which I think we're going to talk about in a minute, and the Adam who's reclining as he's been created, <laughs> right. Right. and God has got the, the, the big white beard, right. and he's just reaching out, almost ready to touch. You can almost see the spark between the two of them. So we're always looking at that hand, that yeah. finger, that reach out, that sort of effusive reach, but... It's the center. Yes, yeah. No, you can just, just so contemplate that's, that's this. That's the one Adam, yeah. yeah. But now, there is... His Second left hand. hand, yeah, his left hand on a finger of what looks to be a, a cherub, a, a, an angelic babe, if you will, yeah, so those a, round a, faces, real cute sort of thing. Young boy. Um, that's the second portrait of Christ right there. It's going around the neck of a woman there. That's right. So we have a woman in between who we believe to be Eve prior to creation. So he already, Eve is a thought in God's mind. Could, could possibly, maybe even be a representation of Mary, the right. Spirit, that whole... Remember, for a lot of people, the Holy Spirit took on feminine overtones when the, the Jews began using Sophia, which is the Greek word for wisdom, as a feminine way of understanding an aspect of God. So God's wisdom was feminine, Sophia, in the Judaism of the couple hundred years just before Christ. Okay. So it wouldn't okay. shock me if yeah. this is kind of his way of representing both that preexistent Mary that had been Pagan forethought, and, yes. and yet also this, this, the Holy Spirit of God okay. as well, kind of all combined. Well, there as is he's a touching Jesus here. Th that's right. So we have we have a duality going on, as you just said. We have him reaching out to Adam. We have him. Uh, his left hand, his left finger, forefinger is on the babe of uh, the Christ child, the new Adam. We have Eve in the middle. Uh, both the original Eve of Adam and Eve, but also, as you were just saying, the, the new Eve. So we have a f the fulfillment here. It's already as if the redemption, uh, the incarnation, all of that is already being thought of by God, by this little child and this very yeah. kind of thin woman. Yeah. I also want to point out, if you look at the way uh, God, the Father's hand, is placed on the right shoulder of the child... It is in a, such a way as when the priest elevates the host at the consecration. Oh wow! As you know, there's yeah. you, know, the, the, you know any little particle mm -hmm. is of course important. You know, the, so it, actually in the old Trinitine rite, they continued to hold their hands together after the elevation so as not to part their finger and thumb because that was just what they held the the host up. So we see some of that. I mean, this is somebody who who knew his faith in and out. Yeah. So what we see when we come at this creation scene is not just the Adam that's been created, which everyone thinks about, but we actually have already in the robe of, of God, it's kind of this big robe in the background that God's coming out of, God the Father's coming out of, we have this whole the redemption of humankind already foreshadowed in the robe of God as he's creating Adam. He has the creation of the second Adam in mind. Yeah, and I want to point out a lot of people have um, speculated on the uh, the maroon encasing, the the sort of shell like image that so I call the robe. Okay, yeah, the, the robe. Okay, um, some have said it's well, it looks just like the human brain, and they've tried to go go from there. Hmm. I okay, yeah, maybe, a little. but but you know, it's okay if we went for the brain motif, or the mind of God, the mind of God, exactly, the mind of God, not the human brain. This right. is the mind of God. All of what we were talking about was was that thought in God's mind. Wow. Okay. Now, the other thought hmm. is a, a kind of uterine image similar to the birth. So we're talking here about the creation of Adam. So we're talking about the creation of, of man. So is that a womb or is that a brain? Right. It's kind of hard right. to say, but it's... It has aspects of both. Of both. Now, there is a lot of the overlooked green stash, which is sort of floating right, at so the bottom. No one notices this thing. There's, <laughs> a, there's a green-looking ribbon almost That's that right. comes out from the bottom. That's right. If we went with the uterine sort of creation, a birth notion, then this would be the umbilical cord. Fascinating. So what we have in these portraits are things that... 
if he'd remain only a sculpture, <laughs> only, but if he'd remain only a sculpture, it would be very difficult to get this into any kind of a of a complete presentation that he was able to do in the Sistine Chapel. This, for all of his reluctance to do it, I think probably ended up being the one opportunity that Michelangelo had for conveying all that he could convey in one set piece of the theology of his mind. Yeah, absolutely. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. With me today is uh, James Day from EWTN, the West Coast, and he has been talking to us about his analysis of the Sistine Chapel. And when we come back, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about some of the poetry that this has inspired. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howard, your host, and with me today has been James Day from EWTN's West Coast Division. And James, before we go any further, I want to thank you so very much for your ministry and for what you've been doing with the Sistine Chapel here at the Diocese of Orange, where we've had this fantastic display. People that want to come see it can still see it through late August of uh, 2020. It's been extended because it's been so popular. It is absolutely stunning, and you're able to see these reproductions of the complete Sistine Chapel up close, where you're able to see it really in many ways better than what you could see anywhere else in any other presentation. I want to talk a little bit about John Paul II and some of the poetry that the Sistine Chapel inspired in him. But before we get into that, you and I were talking during the break about one of the panels that, of course, is iconic for the Sistine Chapel, and that's the Last Judgment scene. And there's a couple of interesting details that you point out. I just want to just throw you the ball. What are the most important things that stand out for you in this this beautiful, beautiful panel? You know, the Last Judgment was worked on by Matt, by Michelangelo 25 years after the, the ceiling. Okay. I love this notion of, of the different stages, by the you know, of his career, you yeah. know, he didn't just have this this flash of brilliance. You know, he he came back and he was older. I mean, there's and he was just so fearless in his presentation. I just yeah. want to state that. Yeah. First off, yeah. okay. So when you're looking at all of the people that are on this wall, you're talking about all sorts of different people with all sorts of different expressions on their faces, and he's portrayed each one both as an individual, but also collectively together in the dynamic dynamism meaning energy of this scene yeah there's a story going on we see here the resurrected christ we have mary off to his right we have peter with the keys what strikes me is we have bartholomew uh and we have uh, bartholomew holding his flayed skin okay, on which people, is people the don't face know about of michelangelo this. okay so people don't know i want to make sure we understand who bartholomew was one of the 12 apostles he's often equated with nathaniel and the way that he was eventually murdered, murdered. was to ha have his skin, skin removed flayed. from his body while he was alive. Supposedly in Armenia. <laughs> and right. so for, for Michelangelo to know all this is, is, is just, again, amazing. That's, but his his face is in there. He did right. the Alfred Hitchcock thing. Yeah, he did a cameo. Michelangelo right. liked to put himself into a lot of his work, and if it was a major complicated work, he put his face in. That's right. And, and you see his face on the flayed skin of Bartholomew, and it's, it's, it seems weird, but, you know... What does that represent? I gotta... to, to me, that says it's a stripping of self. Wow. And, and a, a saying, this is not for me, this is for you. Wow. Okay, and that's one of the striking things for me. Now, also, so you, you see the sort of elevated in the Last Judgment, those who have been who have been brought into glory, they're rising, but we also see quite a number of tormented and damned, and that's the last piece that I did on this series, which is called The Despair of the Tormented. And I wanted to point out, there's so much going on. I mean, uh, you know. It's a very complicated uh, piece. But there's a particular overlooked image, I think, which is right above the altar. Now, I just want to stop real quick and say, let's remind ourselves, popes are elected in here. Yeah. They have to go up, as you know, I mean, it's a process mm -hmm. of, of conclave. And, and, and before this image, before all of this art, state, you know, that they are doing what they're about to do is for the work is through the work of the Holy Spirit and for the good of the church. I mean, this is a humbling, humbling moment to be surrounded by the leaders of our the the College of Cardinals in this place. I just wanted to state that. Yeah. 
and and this is a chapel. This is where you have mass going on in the presence of all this artwork, reminding everyone of the theology of their morality. And with mass going on leads me right into this notion of the cave. And if you look at the altar, which is the, in a way, the last judgment is, is almost an altarpiece because it's, it's right above the altar. Uh, it's, it's the altar wall, really. It's the entire altar wall. Now, see, in Michelangelo's time, and up, really up until, well, we still have, you know, in the, in the extraordinary form, we have at Orientum. Yeah. So the priest w- would have consecrated the host facing the last judgment. Yes. He would have elevated the host and he would have placed the host, raised the host right in front of this cave image. Would have blocked the cave. That's right. Now, I wanted to just speak what's going on in the cave real quick. You have demons, ugly demons with, with clawed feet, and, and they're, they're sort of, yeah, they're zombie-like. It's almost like something from Planet of the Apes, you know, yeah. you know, or Tolkien or something like that. I mean, they, they are just, and they're surrounded by a blaze. And, I mean, it is almost the cave into hell that, that's a sort of eternal separation from God. And yet, it's the host is being held up in front of this as if to say, Matthew sixteen eighteen. Matthew sixteen eighteen, where you've got the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. I mean that that's true for every mass where we have the host being uh, consecrated. Not just here. There is so much more that can be gone into there. I want to make sure that we don't lose this opportunity to talk about the impact it had on John Paul. John Paul was perhaps the most artistic of popes we've ever had. He was an actor, wanted to be an actor for a long time before he realized his call to God was going to be more directly pastoral and so went entered seminary. But he also was a poet. That's right. And he, he wrote poetry that was inspired by the Sistine Chapel. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Read us a little bit about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, John Paul II could have done any number of artistic careers, but he was first and foremost a priest. For his work, though, he only published one piece of poetry during his 27-year pontificate. This was near the end of his end of his life. It was in March 2003 in which uh, it was formally published and it was entitled Roman Triptych. And they were uh, three poems that were essentially uh, meditations on the Sistine Chapel. Actually, it was really Michelangelo's work that inspired this sort of last inspiration, the last piece of effusive work that came out of just this incredible mind of John Paul. And and really, he talks about Michelangelo's uh, impact from Genesis, uh, from cr- from creation. The idea, really, for him, it was his work was the idea of the word becoming flesh in in terms of his art. So it's really a, a meditative piece from a saint. So here he writes, "It is the book of the origins, Genesis. Here in this chapel, Michelangelo penned it, not with words." but with the richness of piled-up colors. This goes back to what we were talking before about the idea of, a, of an icon. And John Paul is clearly talking about how Genesis comes to life when you are looking at the creation of the world in this. Yeah, and at the presentation in 2003, there was an actor who read some lines, and there was also Cardinal Ratzinger, always, always there, to, always there. <laughs> to, to put it into context. And he did a beautiful uh, theological uh, explication of the poetry. Yeah. And he said one line here that I just wanted to say, he goes, the word has a face, the word is a vision. Creation, the universe, comes from a vision, and the human person comes from a vision. You know, I just want to say we I, I don't think we've realized even um the, the the orthodoxy of the faith, the popes who have guided us are all inspired in some way. I mean the way they are creators, they're artists, they're poets. They're they're not just uh dogmatic. Yeah. Well theology is poetry. It, it 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 is the words themselves and yet so much deeper and it's meant to convey the mystery of spirituality, which in the end cannot be fully grasped by the human mind, but can be joined by the human mind to the Spirit of God. And the theology that, the, the closest you can come to that is through art, whether it's poetry or sculpture, or in this case, we've been looking at the Sistine Chapel through painting. And I just want to encourage going off that to, um, you know, there, we need artists. The church needs art. Does art need the church? Uh, that was John Paul's question. Does art need the church? 
um, I would say I would encourage those out there to um, to consider the richness that our faith invites. I hope we've we've touched on that with, with what Michelangelo achieved. It's a profound question. Does the church need art? But does art need the church in order for us to really have the true depth of understanding? We, at least we need God. And God has given that to us in the church. What a great gift that God has given us. And we see that in the Sistine Chapel. We see, we can see the Sistine Chapel here. And for people who are interested, they could go to the RCBO, Roman Catholic Bishop of Orange RCBO website, and they can look up the Sistine Chapel and they can get tickets. They can come in and, and do their meditative best to enjoy this without having to go to Italy. And in my opinion, to see it better than what they can see it in Italy and to be able to appreciate some of the things that you were able to point out in these articles. They can also find these articles if they go to OC Catholic at their website. OC Catholic is a different website from RCBO. OC Catholic has a section on the radio tab to pull down to hear this podcast again. If people would like to do that, they can do that. But there's also the print form, and that's where your articles are, and they can look them up by looking at the Sistine Chapel. James, I want to thank you so very, very much for... All the work that you've done, all the ministry that you've been doing, uh, not just uh, here, but of course also with EWTN, the Eternal Word Television Network. I know th- the times that I've been on the network, it is a spiritual experience in itself to realize you're out there to the entire world, and it's a beautiful thing to be able to, to be a part of. So I'm sure that you're thrilled about that. We're thrilled to have you, and we're thrilled that you were able to spend some time with us on the Sistine Chapel. Thank you. James, if you'd be so kind as to lead us in a brief word of prayer, I'm sure we would all be appreciative. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, uh, please help us open our eyes to see your gaze um, and to see the light of your face. I will just uh, uh, echo Pope Francis here and say, uh, love alone can save our world from its bondage to sin, selfishness, greed, and indifference to the needs of the less fortunate, and help us see your gaze, your face, and those less fortunate as well. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, you've been listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. With me today has been James Day, and we've been talking about the display here at the Diocese of Orange and the Cultural Center on Michelangelo's work at the Sistine Chapel, reproduced beautifully uh, in life-size at the Cultural Center. You can still see that through August, but the tickets are going fast. That's why it was extended. As Karnal Ratzinger said, the word has a face. And we see it so beautifully in the imagery of the gospel of Jesus Christ conveyed through the art of Michelangelo. And I invite all of you to come see that. I'm Rick Howick, your host. And until we see each other next time, may God richly bless you and always 